Hi, I'm Michelle Adams, and welcome back to the Beyond Words podcast. This is the place where we sit down with the writers of your favourite books and talk to them about the inspiration behind the stories that they write. In each episode of this podcast, you'll get the chance to meet the author behind one of my favourite books and be introduced to a novel that I have personally loved and which I think and hope you'll love too. Beyond Words is where the story continues once the final page has been turned. Today I'm welcoming a writer who I have recently discovered but whose first book, The Girl in the Photograph, was released in 2015 to much praise, including the review from Good Housekeeping describing the novel as a sweeping saga of secrets and ghosts. She is a writer, journalist and avid reader of Daphne du Maurier and Agatha Christie, both of whom have influenced her writing. She lives in the Cotswolds where she writes full-time and The Heatwave is her fourth novel which is also the novel that we're here to talk about today. So it brings me great pleasure to introduce to you Kate Riordan. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to say congratulations on your brilliant new novel, The Heat Wave. Um, it's been described by Erin Kelly as sultry, atmospheric and unsettling, which are three adjectives I totally agree with when I read it. Thank you. No, I love that um, that blurb from Erin Kelly. That was really generous of her. And I was, I was the kind of adjectives I really wanted. <laughs> so it was great. <laughs> well, they, they're so they're so fitting for the story. It was so atmospheric. Um, and to start this going forward today, what I'd love to do is just ask you to read uh, from uh, the first chapter of the book, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Um, so this is the very opening of the book, actually, um, because Wonderful. it's one of those books with lots of twists and secrets. And I thought if I go in any further, I'd probably give something away. Um, <laughs> so I'll start at the beginning. So this is part one um, and it's July 1993. The letter is there when I get home from work. I know it's French immediately. The handwritten number seven in the postcode gives it away, crossed and curled, so un-English. Their reverie is finally calling me back. The summer sun is relentless in the place I come from. There, the hard earth absorbs all the heat it can, leaving the rest to hang in the air, heavy as swaddling. On the hottest nights, I would lie awake in damp sheets, the windows and shutters flung back, and listen to the cicadas whirring and the frogs belching, and the thunder rolling around the hills like marbles in a bowl. I didn't miss France when we left. I was grateful the two of us could hide away in North London, safe among the streets of red brick houses and trees that lift the paving stones. I don't even mind that I've become a permanent foreigner, despite my excellent English, the accent always giving me away. Oh, you're French, people say, smiling. All that lovely wine and cheese. I think in English now. I even dream in my adopted language. But as I put down the letter and begin to digest what it means, I do so in my native tongue. It happens automatically. The old language is so easy to inhabit that it's like a shirt you no longer want, but still fits better than anything else. At the telephone in the hall, I open the address book to G. I still don't know your father's number in Paris by heart. Oui? His accent is good, better than when we were still together, when I would tease him saying, Greg, it's not we. Oui. You have to move your mouth with French. Use your lips. I'll use my lips all right, he always said, pantomime raucously, and then he would kiss me. We were forever kissing in the early days, kissing and laughing. We always spoke English together, despite living in France, and not just because my grasp of his language was so much surer than his of mine, but because it balanced things somehow, a house full of English with the whole of France outside. Oh, Sylvie, it's you, he says. 
His voice, low and slightly hoarse, is still capable of piercing the softest parts of me. Is Emma all right? Emma is fine. I can picture him as if he's standing in front of me, the hand that isn't holding the phone turning over a crumpled pack of jetins, a soft chambre shirt ironed by someone else now, impatience in the deep groove between his eyebrows. I swallow, wishing I'd thought about what I would say before I'd rung. Look, I need you to take Emma for a few days, maybe a week. We talked about the end of August, didn't we? Yes, but I need you to have her now, as soon as possible. What? Why? Where are you going? The schools haven't even broken up yet, have they? I can see the letter on the table from where I'm standing, its sharp white corners. They break up on Friday. She'll only miss a few days. I can drop her off in Paris on my way south. South? Sylvie, what's going on? Something happened at the house. The solicitor wrote to me about it. There was, there's been some damage. What sort of damage? A small fire. Look, it was probably accidental, but it's going to cost. The house has been standing empty for 10 years now, and this kind of thing is only going to crop up more. It needs to be sold, and I have to go there in person, sign some papers. You know how it is in France, how complicated they make these things. Well, we'd love to see Emma, of course, but I don't think it will work. You know I don't want her going back there. Besides, I'll be stuck with the solicitors half the time. Sylvia, I've got a buying trip and Nicole is taking the boys to her mother's in Normandy. It's all arranged. I don't reply. I had known really that he would say no. In the silence that follows, both of us lost in our own thoughts, the line hums between us. So you're finally going back, he says eventually, and takes another long drag of his cigarette. So there we go. So that's the opening. <laughs> Hopefully it will intrigue. It's it really does. It really does. And it takes me straight back to reading it. And it's Aww. so, it just, um, it just transports you to a totally different place. And you realize straight away that there are so many things left unsaid in that conversation. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things. It's really interesting with openings, I think, because they're so important to a book. It's the first bit someone's going to read, maybe pick, pick up in a bookshop or get the free sample on their Kindle. And yes. you have to write, rewrite that bit. I think with all writers, the, the beginning is the bit that they agonise over and rewrite and rewrite. And by the end of it, you really need a good editor to sort of step in and help you because you kind of can't see the wood for the trees anymore. And you don't know actually if it's too, you're giving away too much or if it's actually too oblique and that you're not saying enough. Um, but yes, I had a very good editor who helped me sort of trim those bits at the beginning so that you're not giving too much away, but still sort of, you know, enough to, enough meat to intrigue the reader. So yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I think that's very true. Um, I know that uh, trying to, trying to put enough detail in, but take enough out when you know the full story yourself as a writer is very yeah. challenging. And you mentioned having an editor there. Um, that kind of relationship is so important um, and they really help you it really helped you mould the novel into what you wanted it to be without you realising exactly what you wanted, I yeah, always it, think. I think it's really strange. And uh, yeah, a good editor really will. I mean, you know, people are always very effusive in their acknowledgements and for good reason. Um, and my editor, Gillian Taylor, so big shout out to her. She's, she's amazing. We get on very well. And I always feel so lucky to have her because she just has this amazing overview and pulls out all the stuff that you're kind of hedging around but she sort of crystallizes 
all my thoughts and, and, you know, people always say in their acknowledgements, it made it so much better. And I say that as well. And it is kind of, I guess it's all there inside you, but you, yeah, you can't see it yourself. You need somebody else. And I think that's a real, a real skill and a really different skill from being a writer. So Very. yeah, no, they, invaluable. <laughs> well, um, that sort of leads us on into the first thing that I wanted to ask you about, because, um, when you work with an editor, they obviously help you bring out certain elements of the book. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first book I ever wrote, somebody talked talk, talk to me about location. And mm. that was one of the things that really stood out for me in your novel is that there's a very, very strong sense of location as soon as you open this book, talking about La Reverie and this old crumbling cottage or farmhouse mm. rather in France is is location something that you're really drawn to is that what helps yeah. you create the whole book yes definitely I think um I, I always say this in interviews but it's so important to me it's actually always often where I start so okay. people sort of start with characters or a plot hook or and I tend to start with the place which is a bit odd um but it's just yeah it's really important to me and I think it does so much of the work for you if you get it right in terms of atmosphere and tension and sort of you know pulling the reader along and into the story in the first place and I'd always wanted to write about France because I it's very dear to my heart and I spent I have spent a lot of time there in my life um right. but yeah I mean, all my favorite books as well, I think, are really visual. They're books you can see and there's a world that you can immerse yourself in immediately. And they just stay with me longer if I can see it. And I think also I did I did English at university, but I always went for lots of film modules where I could. And so I think the cinematic kind of stuff has gone in there and I, I want to write settings that you can see like you would see a film and, you know, almost the, the opening description of the house or the setting always I sort of see it as a camera zooming in um, and try and get that sense over and people always say oh you know I really really like the setting I thought it was really vivid and I'm always so pleased when they say that because that's kind of my my raison d'etre I suppose um, to use a bit of French Um, because yeah I just think it's it, it just I don't know it just keeps it in your mind the novel then I think and it's then a world that you want to dip back into um so yeah really important to me and yeah I think so what you just said there about um about how it being cinematic it definitely felt like that there are some books you read and you follow the characters and you feel the characters but you don't picture the place in the same mm. way you picture the character but I found that this book when I was reading the heat wave I found myself moving the characters around in my mind into the into the the visual that I created mm. so it does feel very cinematic from even from the from the pool to the indoors the crumbling the old furniture it felt yeah. very 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 visual yeah no well good because that was absolutely my intention and I think also you know for me writing the novel over a year or two I I want a world that I want to go back to again and again you know you I I fight writing quite a lot it's not something that I do love it and I kind of hate it sometimes as well and if I there's a world I can escape to and spend my day in then I'd much rather it was sort of, I quite like dark things happening in beautiful places. I think I would struggle to write a novel in a really ugly, gritty kind of setting. Um, You know, I mean, maybe it would be fun, but I I think especially sort of when you're at home in England and it's really grey, if you can sort of dip into Provence and write about the heat and all that kind of thing, it's, it's a sort of escapism 
you know, that I hope I can convey to the reader, but also for me, quite honestly. So, yeah, I think it, it's... it very much, it very much felt like that. It felt very escapist because you're really there on location. And not only the location seemed very important to me, but also the, the fact that one character was from that location and another character was from a different location. Mm. And their relationship... Um, was very important throughout the novel, especially the parts of the novel that slip into the past. And mm. I wondered if that was something that you'd done intentionally, that you'd, you'd pitted the two characters against each other in a cultural way because they come from two different places into this relationship, bringing two different histories, two different sets of expectations. And perhaps that was important to me because I'm married to somebody who isn't from England and we live here in Cyprus. Mm. And a lot of the things that the characters are experiencing, I, I sort of oh yes, that's what we did and that's how I felt. And I wondered if that was something that was a, a, a sort of conscious choice or whether it just very naturally f developed that way. Yeah, it was quite natural. I mean, I, the very initial idea was it was more about sort of siblings um, rather than it becomes a novel about mothers and daughters. But it just sort of developed um, into, because I wanted elements of Englishness. And I suppose I always write quite Gothic novels. And I think people tend to think of Gothic as kind of Dracula, but in the sort of literary sense of, you know, somebody who goes somewhere where they're quite isolated and there's a sort of yes. threat from without and all those kind of light and dark and shadows. I love all that stuff. And I, you know, got that in where I could in the heat wave. And I think there needed to be a sense of otherness or foreignness that for Sylvie, who's the narrator in the book, she is French, but she's been living in London and, and kind of ran away from France in a sense. And for reasons I won't, I won't go into for fear of spoiling. Um, Yes. But her husband, Greg, um, her ex-husband, as we find her, is is British. And her daughter, Emma, who is the you in the book, it's written in second person. Um, Emma is, is really to all intents and purposes like a, an English schoolgirl like I was um, going to France. So I like that idea of that kind of split. And I think in in terms of child rearing, you know, certainly the, the book is set in the 90s and it flashes back to sort of, the 70s and 80s and I thought it was it would be nice as a kind of there'd be a cultural clash between Sylvie and Greg in terms of bringing up children because you know the French were maybe a little bit more conservative and and Greg is is a kind of hippie and I just thought that was a really nice way of doing it um and yeah just that kind of moving from France to England and Englishness and Frenchness and I just I thought that was really interesting and it, it brought up more conflict and yeah, I don't know. It just it appealed to me, but I certainly didn't intend initially for my narrator to be French, and I didn't know if I could kind of pull it off. And I was really, really, really heartened because I actually got a French deal for this book. And I think you know, to for a French editor to say, yeah, this this works and is authentic, um, was a real boost actually, and, and a lovely surprise. So yeah. Congratulations on that. That is a Thank real you. stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was really surprised. I mean, between her and me, we kind of said, oh, it's, we'll give it a go. But we didn't expect anything from France because, you know, they're rightly so quite sort of protective of, you know, you, French writers should be writing about France and, and they know France yes. and they know the French experience. Um, but, you know, actually it, it came off. So that, that was really nice. I'm looking forward to that coming out next year and seeing what they do with it. But yeah. <laughs> Will that be next summer? 
Yes. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, so they take a while. They take a. They. I mean, you'll know this, but they like a year to translate. Um, so yes, I think it should be next spring or summer. I don't actually know where they're up to because of the virus, and maybe that will be postponed. But I'm hoping it will be spring summer because it's such a an obviously summery book. You mentioned just a moment ago about the conflict between the two characters from a cultural perspective. Mm. Um, And in this respect, I'm speaking about Greg and Sylvie, but there's also the scene very much to me a conflict in their roles as both a mother and a father Mm. when their first daughter was born. Um, And I wondered, um, it, it was really interesting to me how when... And you'll have to stop me if at any point I say anything that you think, no, you're giving anything away. But <laughs> is, it fair, is it fair to say that their first daughter, Elodie, has certain challenges that she faces mm. when she is young? And as a mother and a father, they deal with it in a very different way. And I wondered if that was something that you wanted to sort of comment on throughout the book, that actually, as the mother, she had very little space to deal with these challenges and and felt very compelled to but as a father he was really able just to to sort of ignore it yeah I think um that was something I mean actually I had to do quite a lot of work with with both my US editor and my UK editor the three of us worked together to actually make Greg less um he's he's a bit of a hopeless case in the book I mean I think there'll be lots of women reading it kind of rolling their eyes at Greg being sort of in denial about any problems with Elodie and not really sticking up for Sylvie as much as he should not maybe supporting her I mean obviously I rolled my eyes (laughs) yeah no I know so did I but he actually is is a sort of I I I made I tried to make him more nuanced than he was originally originally you just wanted to punch him and you probably still do now at times but you know my editors were sort of saying we want to we want to understand why Sylvie loved him in the first place and at the moment he's just an idiot and he's just totally kind of you know useless um, and but I think also I have to remember that we're going back a bit in time. Um, so the kind of the marriage of Greg and Sylvie falling apart is kind of six, 70s and 80s. And I think there's a really I've sort of observed this in reading books set in that period and watching films where men at that time thought they were kind of new men. You know, they were kind of all about, you know, the hippie kind of men. They were all about kind of love and peace and equality superficially. But actually behind the scenes at home. The women were still really doing everything um, while the men had the freedom to go out and, you know, get high and talk profoundly about things. And I I wanted to get over that frustration from Sylvie that actually it was her literally left holding the baby all the time. Um, And Greg's job in the book is that he sort of deals in antiques and he, he goes back to England a lot. And I could really sort of picture that when things got tough, he just kind of drives off and leaves her to it and it's easier for him to pretend nothing's happening and it you know that ends up driving them apart really and and so Sylvie is always the villain of the piece in a sense because he just leaves her to it and whenever she brings up her fears about Elodie's behavior and that she maybe isn't kind of you know developing in the right way or that actually there's something a bit sinister going on and I'm being careful not to be spoilery now, it's really hard. Um, but, you know, that he just doesn't want to know. Um, and I, I put in little flashes of, of understanding between them where she sees a little look from Greg and thinks he does get it, he does get it, but he never quite supports her enough. Um, As a reader, I felt like he did get it. Yeah, 
Yes, and and it's a denial thing, which is, is almost worse because it's sort of he knows what she's going through, and he chooses to a ignore it, but also almost gaslight her into thinking it's her issue and it's her problem. Um, yes, which is horrible um, and cowardly. So yeah, it's it was, it was a difficult one, but I I thought a realistic one, and I could see how actually with the best intentions because he's not a bad person really that that could that could unfold and then set in and then you kind of can't get out of it which is often the case when things go wrong it's it's not one bad person but two fairly averagely normal people doing their Mm. best in a difficult situation and one person deals with it one way and one person deals with it in another way yeah and you become sort of entrenched in that and then you kind of I'd say something in it about we kind of it feels like it's all too late too little too late we kind of can't find our way back to each other and also something about divorce being not just you not liking the other person but not liking yourself with that other person that your associations with them become you know you you're maybe really shrewish and snappy and and bitter and you're only like that with that person but you know it it makes you not want to spend time with them because why would you You don't like that version of yourself so I think all those you know although I would say it's a mother and daughter book I think the the relationship and the marriage was also something I wanted to get over and how actually easily that can kind of fall apart um without you meaning it to so hopefully the it definitely came across, yeah. It felt very much like the two main relationships for me were the mother and daughter and the mother with the father. And mm. it reminded me very much of a book, uh, which I'm sure you know, uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I loved that book. And I actually weirdly read that in France um, and had, had got a bit left and sat on the back seat. because I was actually on holiday with my parents and I never read in the car because it always makes me feel sick. But I couldn't stop reading it and I kind of finished as we arrived in Calais. And it just, yeah, I just, I thought that was incredible. It was a real influence on me. I I thought it was really sort of a really brave book. And actually I don't have children and nor does Lionel Shriver. And I I think she got a bit of stick about it at the time and kind of said, well, why shouldn't I write about this? Um, Just because I'm not a mother. You know, she's a daughter. I'm a daughter. I have friends who are mothers and I've watched a million mothers and daughters kind of in action. And also I think I felt quite strongly as though, not having children actually really freed me up to write what I liked in this way. And that I didn't have to worry about a daughter of mine growing up and reading the book and thinking, Oh, you know, <laughs> there was no, is that about me? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Or did, you know, did, did my mum ever feel a bit like that when Sylvie has, you know, real doubts about whether she can do this and whether she wanted to be a mother. Um, and I felt as though this is actually, I've got kind of carte blanche here to do what I like with it. And that felt quite freeing. I remember hearing um, Gillian Flynn talking, I think if I remember correctly, about her first book, Sharp Objects. Yeah. And somebody asked her about how she wrote it and she had written it before she had a child. And, and I th- I'm sure it was that book that she then said that she didn't think that she would be able to write it again. No. Once she'd had a child. I can see that. No, I actually weirdly interviewed her about that book when I was a journalist. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it's a weird kind of coincidence. But yeah, I mean, that is really dark, um, that book. I mean, I love that book. I've, and I love the TV series as well. It's brilliant. Um, but yeah, I can totally see how you wouldn't maybe go there if you'd had particularly a daughter. So no, I thought um, I, I wanted to be quite unflinching about all that stuff. And I just thought it would be really hard for, and I, I think they've got every right to if they're mothers but I thought a mother a writer who is a mother would maybe 
flinch a little at sort of saying, oh God, I don't know if I like this. Um, Because, you know, you would wonder if, I think a lot of readers, well, maybe it's a writer thing. Maybe when I read books, especially by writers I know, I'm always a little bit like, is this them? Is this a bit of them? Um, And, you know, so you have to be, I think, a bit mindful of that as a writer, um, although you shouldn't have to be really. But I also think, I mean, you've said that you've written it as someone that doesn't have children. I also think that you touch on that very difficult element of a very, very long for child. And then you get home and suddenly everyone expects you to know what to do. And really, if it's your first child, you haven't got a clue. Um, that's definitely how I felt. I mean, we, we, we adopted our daughter when she was four months old. And, you know, we'd worked for three, four years to be able to bring our daughter home. And, and mm. I remember getting home on the first night and just sort of thinking, well, now what? Now what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And, and it's a bit terrifying at times because you feel so out there and that that was definitely something that in the book rang very true for me oh good no I'm glad because you always want to you know know that you kind of got things right um yeah I just think that I I can't imagine it not being terrifying um and especially you know in your case where you've adopted a child so there's a huge amount of kind of quite difficult intrusive admin to get through and then suddenly it's here and you're kind of then suddenly on your own I'm sure there is support and all that but do you know what I mean it's that first night when it's just you and the baby and maybe you know a partner and and it's kind of right you go for it (laughs) it must be (laughs) it it really is and it really it really rang very true um, reading those sections where she was at home alone and questioning one whether she was getting it right and whether there was not something um that she was missing when it came yeah. to her to her child. Um, and that idea, because obviously we've, we've mentioned already that the book is set both in the past and um, the present. Mm. And that idea how the past is something inescapable and how the past is something that you can perhaps deny, but you can never get away from. Mm. Um, was that something that you that you really wanted to explore, how the way that the past can affect the present? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we're all products of our past. And I think that, you know, you you don't have to be sort of hamstrung by your past forever and you can work through things. But, you know, I think basically, yeah, I love that idea that the past is always there. I find it kind of, it sounds a bit sort of claustrophobic, but I actually find it quite comforting to think that the past is always there and there are remnants of the past left. And certainly in my earlier books, my historical novels, they're often sort of multiple time frames. So there's a past and then there's an even longer ago past because I can't help it. I've, I've tried to write books that are just in the now. Um, and my book before the heat wave, The Stranger, is just set in six weeks in 1940 in Cornwall. And, but even then I'm going back in time and there's a sort of, you know, a, a romance in that that took place when the heroine was, you know, 16. Because I just think you need those layers. It's what creates you. And as soon as you delve yes. into a character's backstory, um, they become much more interesting. Um, and, you know, I had, a, I had a sort of bad girl at the heart of that book. And she started off as just a sort of bitch, basically, a sort of fairly 2D, horrible sort of Hitchcock blonde. And then yeah. I started thinking about why she was like that and what might have happened to her to make her that brittle and that difficult. And then as soon as I did that, she became much more nuanced, much more rounded, much more interesting and much more sympathetic. So I think even if you're not physically in the, in the narrative going backwards, there needs to be, you need to know as the writer what has gone before for that person or they're just kind of a cipher. 
Um, so yeah, so the past is really important to me. And I think, um, yeah, you're kind of, I don't know, you, you wouldn't be where you were without various things happening to you. And I think I find it irresistible as the writer almost to, to go back and see what happened and, and not just hear it, but actually go back in time. So although, you know, so with the heat wave, I came back to thinking, no, I actually want to write these flashbacks. I don't want to just mention them in passing. I want to get into them. Um, and also that meant I could play with the, the times a bit. So it was such an interesting time, that kind of, 60s into 70s into 80s and even though they're in the middle of nowhere in France those cultural things still impinge and I think yes. you know Greg's kind of the way Greg is and his kind of music tastes and his everything about his kind of hippie ideals I think the way what happens with his marriage and what's going on with Elodie um, is is all kind of a reflection of his beliefs all kind of crumbling. So this sort of idealism of the 60s and the hippies kind of giving way as the 70s goes through and you've got Vietnam and Watergate and, you know, the Manson murders at the end of the 60s, all that stuff is kind of, is supposed to sort of echo what's going wrong with him really and how all his ideals are kind of, you know, going to shit basically. <laughs> so yeah, sorry, swearing there. That was a terrible resistance. <laughs> Don't so worry far. about it. No, no, go, go for it. Um, and um, you mentioned there about his ideas, you know, sort of falling apart about who he is. And I don't know whether it's okay to say this, but Elodie is Elodie is a dark character. Is that is that yeah. okay to reveal that she's yeah. a very dark character? Yeah. Um, and and I wonder there are there are other characters that made me wonder because Elodie is the obvious dark character, but mm. there are there is an element of darkness in the other characters. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think maybe there's an element of darkness in most people. I'm always slightly suspicious of people that are really nice and really happy all the time. I just think it's yeah. a bit weird, given that the yeah. world we're in and what, you know, particularly at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I wanted, like, for instance, Camille, who is um, Sylvie's sister, her older sister, um, I wanted there to be, it's quite, it's quite an interesting relationship. And actually, I really enjoyed writing that because actually Camille is kind of there for her, but she's very prickly. And there's, there's obviously a real past there between her and Sylvie of kind of competitive dieting and being a bit jealous of each other. And, you know, I thought quite a realistic sibling relationship where actually there's tensions, but they sort of love each other really. Um, but Camille's actually really selfish as well. And yeah, all those characters, I kind of, I mean, there's another character, I don't know if you were sort of thinking of her, but she's um, Sylvie's sort of childhood sweetheart, um, has grown up and married this woman um, who's really difficult um, and quite spiteful to Sylvie and lots of little digs and, and actually is in danger of revealing things to Emma, the younger daughter that Sylvie doesn't want revealed. Um, and again, so she's not a kind of straightforwardly nice, easy character. Um, I think I just want everyone to have their own story and their own axe to grind. Because I think people do kind of have an agenda generally, even if subconsciously um, in moments of tension and crisis, you know, everyone's got their own, you know, their own personal kind of things that they're worried about. So I wanted to get that over. And I didn't want any characters just to be there to kind of push the plot along, if you see what I mean. No, they all feel really, really well-rounded. The one yeah. that I was particularly thinking of when I was thinking about the darkness was Sylvie herself. Ah, right. Okay. I forgot about her. The main, <laughs> the main character. 
Yeah, no, I mean, in fact, she was another one that we, you know, obviously you work on all your characters with your editor. But I think I wanted to, I didn't want to make her too nice. From the beginning, she was quite spiky. She was quite honest with the reader. And, you know, Jill, when Jill and I worked on it initially, she was kind of, I don't want readers to actually, I don't want you to lose readers early on because they just don't like Sylvie. So I, I tried to make her more sympathetic I think I was doing that thing where I knew that she had stuff to, you know there was stuff that you should feel sorry for her about and that she'd actually been through the mill but of course the reader doesn't know that at the beginning and you've got to keep them so I wanted to show her softer side which was always there but I just I hadn't shown it enough to begin with so yeah I think she is she is a darker character and I think again I think we all are I do think we have that dark darker side and those things that you know when it comes to being a parent and being married and being in love and falling out of love you know that's all really difficult stuff and I think there's a line in the book somewhere about you know if, if we really it might be in another book actually that I wrote I don't know I can't remember but <laughs> you know if the people closest to us knew what we really thought because I think we do have you know uncharitable thoughts sometimes or not even uncharitable but just really dark thoughts that you know even the people that we spend all our time with wouldn't maybe suspect us of I think so and in a life that you just would never talk to people about no um and you you know you do present I mean this I don't mean it's in any kind of false way and actually I'm a ridiculously open person and I always give away all my secrets sort of too much but you know we do all have things that we, we have we present ourselves in a particular way and I wanted Sylvie I wanted the reader to be in Sylvie's head and that meant that if she thought oh God, I don't know if I like my daughter, that we were told that rather than what she would say to a friend having coffee, which would be, oh, I'm finding things difficult, but she wouldn't maybe yes. dare say that. So yeah, that was important. But yes, I had to show her vulnerability. And I also had to show that conflict between this total instinctive maternal love that did kick in when she, had, when she took Elodie home with you know her her more darker thoughts and I think I also had Emma the younger daughter in there as a kind of foil for any reader that was finding Sylvie difficult in terms of Elodie so the the relationship between Emma and her mum is much more simple and much more straightforward um, and the kind of mother-daughter relationship Sylvie had dreamed she would have with Elodie and I kind of wanted to put that in there to show almost to say to the reader look, she can, she can do it, or rather she, it isn't, Sylvie, it isn't just Sylvie, there is something going on here with Elodie, um, because look how it is with Emma, kind of thing. Def, definitely, that's how I felt, because you see her relationship with Emma, which thereby changes what you believe and think you know about Elodie, because if yeah. it's possible in one capacity, it must be possible in another, unless there are other circumstances that prevent it. Yeah, and I think um, there was, I mean, uh, you know, you want it in a sort of mystery book like this, you want there to be lots of questions that the reader's asking all the way through and kind of they're sent one way and then they're sent another way. And I think, you know, second children or middle children, you know, it gets easier as well. I, I mean, I'm not a mother, but from what I've observed, it's sort of you do relax with the babies that come later. And it, it results in a different kind of child. And it's no coincidence that eldest children tend to, to be the slightly more anxious ones, the slightly more overachieving ones, because I think the brakes come off a bit with a, with, a, with a later child. So they're often a bit naughtier and because they've had a slightly more hands-off upbringing often. Yeah. Um, there's a really yeah. interesting book about this called um, They Fuck You Up. 
by Oliver, Dr. Oliver, is it Oliver James? Um, just about the fact that however, however carefully you want to parent and be equal and fair to both children, you almost, you can't because you are a different person. You are a different parent by the time the second one comes along. Um, because you learn so, so much more so much the first time around yeah and you you haven't copped it up you know the the eldest child is is still alive and they're they're okay and so you think oh well actually I'm not that bad at this so you relax um totally I wanted readers to kind of think well maybe she just did that with Emma and 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 sort of go back and forward in terms of how they think of Sylvie you know did she do a good job did she you know is it about she asks the question in the book herself is it her or is it me and I guess it's probably a bit of both or a lot of one and less of the other but you know I, again I don't want to spoil anything but there is clearly an issue there but Sylvie doesn't know that initially and so she's asking that kind of oh god and she's got nothing else to compare it to and then when Emma comes along and it's very straightforward I think probably some of her guilt lifts with Elodie because it's kind of oh well actually I can do this so, so maybe it wasn't my fault yeah exactly and because Elodie's such a dark character, I wondered who your favourite dark characters are in fiction or film? Or Oh, um, well, I mean, going back to um, Gillian Flynn, I think in, I mean, Amy Dunn, I think is a great character. Um, I think in Gone Girl, I think she's, I just loved her. I mean, I do love like bad women or, you know, difficult women. And I always, you know, I did rail against this a bit with, with Jill in our initial editing. Cause I kind of said, I don't, I'm not, you know, there's that whole relatable thing. Is your character relatable? And I was like, Oh, I don't care if they're relatable. And actually I think, yeah. I think bad characters are often relatable because it speaks to our kind of forbidden side. Um, but I loved Amy Dunn because I thought she is a kind of selfish spoiled princess but I loved all that stuff about the cool girl thing. Um, I mean, like all my friends love this, that idea that, you know, you, you wear makeup and you look sexy all the time, but you have to pretend that it comes with no effort and, yes. you know, all that stuff. I think yeah. I loved all that. Um, and I love all her female characters. They're all difficult and they're all, um, I don't know, just mean sometimes. <laughs> and she, she wrote quite... some great characters. Yeah, she really has. So, yeah, any complicated women like that, I think um, I'm just looking at my bookshelves now. Um, I, one book I absolutely love and was, had a real effect on me when I was much younger. I probably read it slightly too young. I nicked it off my mum. But um, Cat's Eye by Margaret Atwood and uh-huh. um, is, is fantastic. And a lot of it's about little girls and how brutal little girls can be to each other. And I've always found that fascinating. I think boys are much more straightforward generally. Um, I mean, I, I think know that's true. Cliche, that you know, boys fight and girls sort of insidiously bully each other. <laughs> um, but I think often it is, it is that way, and and that's a fascinating book for that sort of dynamic between children. And you know, all those sort of books have fed into um, Elodie as as a character and, and a kind of you know a girl with something missing. Um, so yeah, I, I I mean, any any dark characters like that, I I find fascinating. And do you think that your work as a journalist um, played a big role in the kind of things that you produce as a writer? I don't know. Um, I think, I mean, I, I must say just in terms of working habits, I find I'm much more suited to journalism in, in the sense of, you know, you get a deadline and they want it in by Friday and it's a thousand words and you can sit there and, you know, bosh, it's done in like, three hours and then it's and I find that whole like right see you in a year or whatever with with writing (laughs) novels 
really tough because I'm not a consistent nine to five writer. I just can't do it. And I'll have a whole week where I don't do any writing and then I'm completely sort of wrapped with guilt. Um, so I don't know. I think actually, I think when I'm better at editing, actually, when edits are kind of getting tighter and tighter as publication draws near, because I can really focus then. But I find it very difficult early on um, to get sort of started. So in a sense, I think journalism slightly ruined me. Because now you need a deadline. Now I really need a deadline. And, you know, a year, a year is too far. That doesn't kind of count as a deadline. But you really can't just sit down and write 90,000 words in like a couple of weeks if you've really left it till the last minute. So, yes. you know, you do have to, I, I saw him, I went to see um, Ian McEwen at some literary festival and he said, and it's absolutely true, you know, you do have to show up as a writer, even if it's at your own desk, in your own house and no one's watching you. And sometimes I don't show up and I do have guilt then. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I haven't done much writing in lockdown, I must say. I've really struggled with that. Um, but I have been Me thinking too. about <laughs> yeah I don't know I've got one friend one writer friend who did loads and loads and that was her coping mechanism and I'm so jealous of her um because I just no I find it very hard to write during lockdown yeah it was, it's really tough and I think I started using it as an excuse eventually because you know you can't maintain that level of anxiety and obviously everyone was anxious at the beginning because it was completely sort of unprecedented but you know you do sort of get used to anything I think as a human and I was just kind of, I'm using this as an excuse now. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> in that zone, but hoping to come out of it soon and get on with it. <laughs> well, obviously it's, it's changed your writing practices over the last couple of months. Well, even longer than that now that we've all been in lockdown. Um, but it's also pushed your, your publication back. We were talking about earlier before we yeah. started recording. Mm. Um, were you making any plans before lockdown to have a launch party? Is that something that you were going to do and that's now shifted? Yeah, I was hoping to have a, a, a party and I've always, um, I'm always a bit scared of throwing parties like for myself as well as for books and things. So I've always sort of chickened out and done joint launches and things. So it's kind of, I've just got this horrible fear that like no one would show up, which I just don't oh, think would absolutely. happen. I've got lots of nice <laughs> friends and family who would be very happy to be invited to like a, you know, a party in a bookshop. But um, yeah, I was going to sort of brave it this time, I think. And maybe there's a chance because it's um, the paperback's not out till oh, well, we're, we're, we're talking in um, slightly earlier than the, the podcast is coming out. But yeah, I, I mean, there's a small chance I could have a little party. But yeah, maybe it will have to wait till the next book. We'll see. A, a socially distanced party. Yeah, and I did actually, when the um, ebook was out in April, I had a, a, like a Zoom, a little Zoom drink with, um, there's like a group of us on a WhatsApp thread, really good friends. Um, oh, that's nice. Writer friends, yeah, and we, we sort of had a little drink on Zoom. And uh, I was sort of slightly hazy, actually, because I'd already had a bottle of champagne when I joined them. Because so, um, <laughs> it was a French book, I thought, right, not Prosecco, I'll actually get proper stuff. And, uh, yeah, Do it properly. Was, yeah, exactly. So, no, it was nice. <laughs> Well, that was good. That was really nice. Mm. So you say the paperback is out in September? September the 3rd. So, um, yes. So I think just about, you know, um, if there's an Indian summer and we have a nice warm September, um, hopefully that will mean that it doesn't seem too oddly summery. It's got a very lovely summery cover. But actually, I think because of what's happened this year, lots of people will be hopefully going off on late breaks after maybe the schools go back. Um, 
and I just also think people feel like they've kind of missed out this year and so maybe my nice swimming pool cover will will make them think oh well, we'll have a, like a, a late bit of escapism in a book instead it will lure people in hopefully yeah <laughs> and are you working on anything else at the moment yeah so this book that I'm trying to write um and actually I, I do like the idea and it's it's another escapist kind of book I mean I'm not always planning to sort of set very sort of thrillery mysteries in nice places abroad but this one is at the moment set in Italy and I think it will stay in Italy um and it's about it's I suppose where the heat wave is about mothers and daughters this is more directly about relationship sustaining relationships and sort of getting to 40 and thinking right is this it's that kind of halfway point you know fingers crossed if we have a good life that you think okay I'm still young enough to sort of start again but I'm old enough to kind of know what I really want and you know is this enough and you know is my life how I thought it would be and is it turning out like I thought it would be and I I just I've you know spoken to lots of friends and quite a few friends of have maybe split up with their partners or are splitting up with their partners and it seems to be quite a crunch time and I think that's been exacerbated by lockdown this year as well um absolutely and I just think it's a really interesting dynamic that I think um I I don't know I think a lot of people end up in and I'm not talking about me now this is a sort of general thing but people end up in relationships that they've sort of settled into because it's the right time and they're maybe getting a bit panicky and they kind of think we need to get on with things because of kids, particularly from a female point of view. And yes. I don't always think it's the right person. And I don't, I'm not one of those people who thinks there is the one, although my romantic side does, but I think, I think people end up in, in spending, you know, half their lives with somebody and it might not have been what they would have chosen if they yes. had more time and less anxieties. So it's that kind of when something comes to an end or is drifting and you're just friends really. And is that what you want when you're still feeling quite alive and young? Um, so I wanted to delve into that really. Um, and the basic premise is that this couple have had um, a lot of trouble conceiving and they, they just want to get away. All their friends in London have had children they are not going to have children. They've kind of given up on that. And so they sell up in London and they buy a place, a cheap place in Italy to do up as a kind of expensive sort of guest house, a bit escape to the chateau, basically. And, yes. um, and then when we meet them, their first guests are arriving and they were thinking that they were actually going to have to give up and come home because they weren't getting any bookings. But just as they are panicking, they get a three week booking from this American couple, this very enigmatic American couple. My working title is the Americans. And these people turn up and they kind of turn the whole thing upside down and it becomes quite dark and a bit sort of flirty and a bit it's not kind of like a swingers book but you know there is this <laughs> there's sounds brilliant yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I am actually when I can make myself sit down and write it I'm really enjoying it and making myself write set scenes and stuff which I, I normally well I've talked to lots of writer friends about this you kind of like avoid a bit it always gets oh, I do. Kind of <laughs> embarrassing um, but you know actually it's quite fun as well so I'm seeing how far I can push myself with that and pretending that it will never be published um, and see what gets left in 
<laughs> writing sex writing sex scenes always feels a bit like being 13 and in sex education at school it really does and you kind of can't help thinking about your parents three it was all those things that act, you know actors say about their parents watching films where they've done like a sex scene and it's a bit yes. like that and your friends reading it as well and thinking oh is that what she you know it's like, oh, God. Um, is that from memory <laughs> yeah exactly uh, so yes yeah, so we'll see how we go with that but um so far it's it's quite fun and I just I like that idea of you know dark relationships and um bit of sort of control and coercion and again the past comes into that there's a kind of element all right again it's a spoiler thing but you know how somebody is actually taken back to when they were 20 and all these things that they've sort of repressed come bubbling to the surface about their first love so there's a there is still you know I can't resist it I there's an element of going back in time in that as well and I don't know whether to write the flashbacks yet but I think I might because I again I can't resist so yeah no I'm, I'm actually really enjoying it I just need to do more than two hours a week at the moment <laughs> oh. well I love the heat wave and I think it sounds like I'm going to absolutely love the Americans as well Ooh, I hope so no thank you for <laughs> interviewing me it's been really fun well, it's been a pleasure to have you, Kate. Thanks so much for joining us here on, on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Kate.